We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Baseball Immortal, Derek Jeter, A Career in Quotes, the publisher, Page Street Publishing. Please join me as we welcome home Danny Perry to the clubhouse. Thank you. It's, uh, it is nice being home. This is my third time, and the last time I was here, I see my Gil Hodges book up in this huge pile <laughs> in, in the Tipping back, over. Yeah, in the back room. And one of the reasons I lo love this place is uh, the last time I was here with the Gil Hodges, I was doing uh, radio shows and TV and, and newspapers and interviews, and I'd spend half the, half the time explaining why Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame, and you go over and over and over. And when I was here last time with the Hodges, I said, okay, how many people here think Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame? You maybe remember this. Everybody raised yeah. their hand. <laughs> so, perfect audience. <laughs> and when I was here with Roger, the Roger Maris uh, right. biography, too, what I said at, at that time was that uh, that I was an A's fan and, and partly an Indian fan. I was a big power fan, so whatever team he was on was my favorite team. And in 1961, when Roger Maris broke the home run record, I really rooted for him because he was a former A and a former Indian. And I rooted for the Tigers to win the, win the, world, uh, win the pennant and go on to the World Series. But uh, I, I made it very clear that I rooted for Maris, didn't root for the Yankees. And in case of Derek Jeter, I didn't root for Derek Jeter either. I didn't root for the Yankees <laughs> or Derek Jeter, but I completely admire him as a, as a ball player, which is why he's my subject. Terrific. And uh, will you tie now, for, uh, pr appropriately, since it is, a, it is about a, a great, great player, you tie for the clubhouse lead with the third <laughs> appearance. So oh, you're right I, up I, there. I didn't know that. But, yes. But I am, nope. back, I am back home. So you, you may have to get going, although... Uh, I guess we can announce it to the podcast crowd in this group. You may actually go into the lead because yes, your yes. fourth appearance may be coming up this before Father's Day. Father's Day, uh, uh, another in this series uh, will, be, will be about Jackie Robinson, uh, a quote book, and it's actually longer because it's a cover. Well, what was really interesting about the Derek Jeter book is that it covers his his whole life, but it his career and his life. Overlap. Maybe they're just the same thing. With with Jackie Robinson, of course, he he died in 1972, and we're still feeling his legacy. And he gets and he's actually becoming more and more iconic as the years go on now. So absolutely. But long book. Yeah. <laughs> well, we definitely look forward to that one. Uh, and may, this is mainly for the folks listening to the podcast. I just want to uh, read. A very brief bio of Danny's, just so the people, uh, whoever's listening, may know who, who Danny is. Uh, yes, who am I? Yeah, so we're going to now find out, just like we don't know who Derek Jeter is. Uh, Danny Perry is a sports and film historian who has published 24 books. He collaborated on the biographies of Roger Maris and Gil Hodges, the autobiographies of Ralph Kiner and Shannon Miller, and three books with Tim McCarver. He also edited the anthology, Cult Baseball Players, The Oral Histories Super Bowl, The Game of Our Lives, 
and we played the game Memories of Baseball's Greatest Era. He is the writer researcher of the Tim McCarver Show. So that's that is Danny. Yes, that sounded like me. Yes. <laughs> Can I read something? Absolutely. I want, I want to read something. Uh, this is one of the, the blurbs on the back of the book, uh, which is a, a rave, but, but anyway. Danny Perry provides a unique portrait of the former captain of the New York Yankees, a man of more than 3,465 more major league hits and more, many, many more than 3,000 words. If Jeter carefully avoided self-indulgence, others were there to speak of him, from fans to teammates to opponents to baseball executives and to us sports writers. It's all there in this riveting book. And the reason I'm reading this, it was written by Phil Pepe, who died this, who just passed away this week, and very sad about that. But uh, it's great to have his words on my book, the last words, maybe the last he wrote. I don't, I don't know. Well, th I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And uh, Phil was here twice with a big books. Loss. A big uh, loss. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, tonight's subject came up in when Phil was here with Core 4, mm. and one of the questions uh, was about, obviously, about Derek Jeter, and Phil said, it's amazing, we don't know anything about this guy. Mm -hmm. He's been here for 20 years. Does he like the opera? Does he, does he like to go to Italian restaurants? Does he, nobody knows anything about so him. The, the people would ask, ask Derek Jeter, what is your favorite book that you've ever read? And he would say his own book. That was a, a life you imagined, his, his first uh, autobiography. And this is a really smart, smart guy. You know, he was like a, he's a, like a whiz at Jeopardy, you know, that kind of thing. He knows, knows a lot of subjects. He had a 3.8 grade point in, in high school and was on honor, honor society, but he also a jock. So who knows? Who, who knows? You know, Michael Kay said the same thing. You know, everybody said the same thing. Right. Every reporter, he said you could... You could knock on his door, and he he, he he would stand on one side of the screen, and you'd be on the other, and he would talk for five four or five hours, but he never let you in. So that's well, a big metaphor there. Yeah. So uh, that's that's Derek Jeter. So how how did this book come about? Uh, what how did, how did the whole project? Well, start? I mentioned before, I just admire the guy so much. I just think in turn, what well, Reggie Jackson had this had this line, which of course is in the book which is uh, at this point in time, he was still a player. Uh, the person who's the best baseball player is not the one with the most talent. And that sort of symbolized who Derek Jeter, epitomized who Derek Jeter was. I just, in, in terms of me as a fan, watching this guy play for 20 years and kill the A's. You know, <laughs> worse, worse, but it's just the combination of the talent uh, the drive, the f fundamentally sound, and and the knowledge of the game and the knowledge of the history, you know, it's all in his play. And the big word is, is passion. Uh, I, I use a quote at the beginning by, by Galileo, of all people, right. which is, uh, is passion is the genesis of genius. And I think uh, having watched Jerry Jeter play 20 years and having watched as many of you have watched baseball since the 40s and 50s, I'm not that old, 50s, <laughs> uh, that uh, this guy was very, was unique. He's just a unique ball player and he's just 
this. If this is what a ball player should be like, the, the, all, all this. And, uh, and the other thing that I really, you mentioned I did a book with Shannon Miller. Uh, does everybody know who she is? A gymnast, uh, Olympic gymnast, won seven medals, two gold medals and uh, 1992, 1996, and she's a cancer survivor. And I worked with her on her autobiography. It's not about perfect. And I became really interested in what makes a winner, what, what it takes to be a winner. And Derek Jeter is really interesting in that aspect, just to, just to explore, explore everything. Uh, Shannon Miller used to compete against herself that was her thing. She never cared what anybody else's uh, point total are on, on balance beam or her. She was just told, just do your best, whatever. Derek Jeter wasn't like this. He, 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 the only thing he and Shannon Miller had in common was work. That was like the main thing. And one of, one of Derek Jeter's, my favorite quotes of Derek Jeter is, it's, it's really easy to work hard, which, <laughs> which his parents taught him that people will have more talent than you. You'll always, you'll always find guys who have more talent, but you, there's no reason you can't outwork them. And that's exactly what Shannon Miller told me, you know, so that's this winner thing. But what, what I've been pondering, uh, is a quote I've been pondering about Derek Jeter, and I just keep thinking about it, which is Charlie Hayes' quote, uh, which says, Derek Jeter, was not afraid of failure. And his father said the same thing, my son is not afraid of failure. And Derek Jeter has a quote about, I don't understand why baseball players don't come to New York, are afraid to come to New York. It must be a fear of failure, you know, which he doesn't have, the more conf so confident. But as I ponder this, I, I've been thinking that he wasn't afraid of failure because he could always he, he was a positive guy from his mother. His mother's the most positive person and always could put mistakes and failure behind him and move on and just forget about it, which is one of the reasons he didn't like to talk to reporters because they always like to bring up negativity. He didn't want to deal with this. But as my pondering goes on, I, I just think he hated failure. You know, he wasn't afraid of it, but he hated it. You know, he wanted to win more than anything. The Joe Torre quote, he did never get enough of winning. And you know, the, that cliche, it has become a cliche. If I had to you know, run down the street against my grandmother and make sure I beat her, you know, that should be a, one person in the world would ever say that. But all the winners always say that. We hear that over and over and over again. And Jeter was one of those. And, you know, and if I play checkers, I have to win. I, you know, if I play tiddlywinks, I have to win. And his father, uh, at very early age, you know how we all, you know, with kids, we always let them win. You know, we always, some way or the other, find a way to win. Not Jeter's father. Jeter's father would beat him in everything, over and over. Even they would watch the prices right on TV together before, <laughs> before uh, Jeter went off to school in kindergarten or whatever. And the father would beat him, and it, and and it was Jeter's lesson was that, you know, nobody's going to give you anything. And so Jeter grew up like this, and he finally beat his father in uh, one-on-one basketball when he was 13, and his father had to clean the bathrooms or something, and he, he said it was all worth it just for that to happen. <laughs> so, uh, so the whole thing with 
Jeter, when Jeter came up, uh, you remember uh, Jeter fans, he came up, he was a rookie of the year in 1996, but he came up in 1995 for a little bit, and then he got sent down, and he and Mariano Rivera both cried. They were both, they were both so, you know, Jeter cried a lot, <laughs> surprisingly enough. And they, but they got, uh, he got called back up in September and basically watched the end of the year, and then he watched the, uh, the Yankees lose to the Mariners in, in the playoffs. That's all Yankee fans are still in shock over that one. <laughs> um, and after the game was over and the Mariners are out there celebrating, Jeter sat there and watched. You know, he, he was just a minor part of, part of the team. He, he wasn't, wasn't important at all, but he, sat, he wanted to take it in, what it means to lose, because I don't want to ever experience that again. That's, that's this guy, and he would do this every time they lost. And the first few years, they didn't lose very much, you know, for, till, till 2001 when they finally lost to Arizona. So, like, they lost in 97, but 96, 98, 99, 2000, he got used to winning and winning and winning and winning. And they finally, he lost to Arizona, then they lost to the Angels in 2002 in the, in the, in the division series. And, and he sat and watched again. And, and then when the Red Sox, of course, in 2004, came back and won four games. I will never forget this. That was his thing. He would always say, which is interesting, he'd always say, they played better than us every year. Jeter's famous for having a quote he would say in 1995, and he'd say the same quote in 2005 <laughs> and the same quote in 2015. And that was one of his things. Every time that the team would lose, he'd say, I'll never forget this. But he'd always sit and watch the celebration because he didn't want to experience that again. And, and until spring, he, uh, he, was, he was mortified and just wait to, wait, wait to get back out there to win. And uh, it's just a strange, a strange fellow, but that, that he was just driven, and that's why he was a winner, you know. I couldn't do it, yeah. <laughs> but he did it. So. Yeah, it's amazing also at that level where you would assume nearly every major leaguer would have that, but they, they don't. There's something different. I'm sure you know, all you, you Jeter fans would, would see him uh, come on talk shows after the season and they would say, well, you made the World Series, and so it was a good year, and he would always say, no, it was a failure. Well, you know, we made it, what, what good did it do to make the World Series? We lost, you know, and we're all thinking, you know, moral victories, you know, your team wasn't as good as the other teams, you still made it, you, you know, but not him. He would always steadfastly say, I lost, we lost, what good was it? And it goes back to the his father, dealing with his father, and he loves his father. So I know his father was an army guy, but very, very loving family. So. Yeah. Well, does anyone want to? Uh, well, I'm just curious the biracial nature of his parents' life. Everybody talks about how wonderful his family parents are, and Terry Jeter's is well known. But did they have a lot of difficulty because of racism as a? Marriage. Well, Charles Jeter says that. He says people don't know what Derek went through having biracial biracial family. Uh, What's well, interesting, I find, uh, 
Did people see uh, Do the Right Thing, the Spike Lee movie? Sure. You remember John Turturro's mm -hmm. pizza right. parlor and he had baseball people? He doesn't have Roy Campanella up there. <laughs> you know, he's Italian, he doesn't have Roy Campanella. And uh, who, who, of course, biracial, father Italian, mother black. And uh, Derek Jeter was always accepted. It's, ama it's amazing in, in, since he's been in baseball how popular he was with all the ethnicity. But he, he would even go back, you know, when, when he was early in his career, a minor leaguer, he'd go back to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he grew up, and, you know, somebody would say the N-word to him or they point out to him. And he talked, you know, we talked, say Jeter doesn't talk, but, uh, and he did, he does about his, it's interesting, he'll talk about his past. He'll never talk about present, because that's the negativity stuff. And when they ask him about the biracial stuff, he will talk about it uh, more than other things. And he says he went through it all and it was hurtful. But with Jeter, he would always learn lessons. Everything would be a lesson for him. And his parents would tell them, and that was to treat everybody the same, equality, don't be like those people. And uh, he got through it, but he, I think he had scars and his, and his, uh, his father said so. He doesn't say I'm you know, traumatized for the rest of my life, but I'm sure it's there. And uh, a nice little story, you know, you know, the pride of being black, which is, which is really nice with uh, Derek Jeter, uh, which he'd speak out more on civil rights issues, but he never does. But, but uh, I, was, I was in Michigan with uh, the Tim McCarver show. We were, were there and having lunch with uh, Tim and Bobby Mercer and Tino Martinez and, and Derek Jeter were having lunch. And this is the, ho the hotel room, uh, uh, cafeteria or restaurant and lots of people around. His father comes in and just runs up and gives him a big kiss. And uh, I always was really touched by that. I mean, just the pride. He's always had such pride in his parents. Uh, and uh, racially, you know, he's, uh, he's always been very prideful of, of having friends of different races and different religions and persuasions and whatever. So that's a good side of, side of him. And it says the, the um, the person he'd like to meet more than anybody else is Jackie Robinson. Yeah. So he's ho I've always admired Derek Jeter for that and, and something else. You know, Derek Jeter really, really felt the debt to Jackie Robinson even in the 1990s. And with that, and that's a time before when a lot of ball players never heard of, black ball right. players never heard of Jackie Robinson which is, seems unbelievable, but it really happened. And he would, not only was he a Jackie Robinson fan, he was a Rachel Robinson fan. And that I always admired about him, that he, he really uh, wanted to be, they become friends and he helps with the Jackie Robinson Foundation and things like that. So I'm real, I, I respect him a lot for that. Yeah. Is Kalamazoo a mixed city? Yeah, so it's, it's a working a working class city, uh, blue collar. Um, his father works in the alcohol and drug abuse. He now handles the 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 Turn Two Foundation, which is Derek Jeter's foundation for kids 
building leadership and, and scholarship, which he's had since he was a, a rookie in 1996. He started with his father and with his, made it a family thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it, has, it, has, it has racial problems. And uh, I guess even Kalamazoo Central, where he went to, is very mixed. His parents are still in Kalamazoo. I think so. Uh, you know, he he moved to Tampa. Right. So they they see each other all the time. But to tell you the influence of Derek Jeter's parents on him. His, one of the big lines of Derek Jeter. You know, if you wonder what makes Derek Jeter tick, it's it's the quote which he said to Matt Lauer right at the end. If you saw the interview, but he said it all along. I never wanted to embarrass my parents. And that's why he always stayed a straight and narrow, whatever. But uh, I forgot what I was saying. But but he he and his parents. Um, oh yeah, I do remember. He had a, he had a Derek had a friend named R. D. Long, who they were friends became friends at Greensboro and Tampa in the minor leagues. And he and they and when Derek became a uh, star immediately in New York in 1996. Artie Long would come visit and, and they would hit the town and hit the clubs and hit, hit, hit everything. And Artie Long says they were watching, um, they were in Derek Jeter's uh, apartment and watching, um, watching a show about uh, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry about their drug addiction and whatever and how when they came to New York they, you know, they led the high life and they got in really, really, really bad trouble. And uh, he says, uh, so the show ended, the phone rang, Derek picked it up, it's, it's, it, it's, our, uh, it's, it's his parents, and telling him they watched the show too. <laughs> and, you know, Dorothy Long says, I knew except the moment he hung up the phone, that was the end of our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> she, they were telling, he would tell him not to hang right. around. Yeah. And also the rookie year is, you know, he's having this fabulous rookie year, he gets a hit the, he was in all the headlines, big, big, big star, and then, uh, uh, then uh, George Steinbrenner's daughter uh, just remembers that all of a sudden he's got completely anxious one day and had to rush out because his his parents were coming and his mother was coming over and he had to go home and clean the apartment. He was like scared. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's Derek Jeter as an adult. That's Derek Jeter as an yeah. adult. So interesting. So I, I literally spent the second half of Derek Jeter's career hoping he wasn't going to fall from grace like so many people did, and he didn't have it. Um, you, can, you can take little quibbles with him here and there. Uh, the one that I remember was when uh, Bob Shepard passed away, and none of the Yankees went to the funeral after Cashman was the only one. You're kind of like, Derek, well, you know, what were you thinking? Who knows? Who knows? And Derek Jeter gave us a good talk at the memorial. For, for Bob, George Steinbrenner died around the same time, and he gave a he gave a speech. Is, is there, can, can I can I now sleep well? Is Derek Jeter? Is there nothing that's going to come out of him doing whether it's what I know? Steroids or, or seven illegitimate kids or whatever? <laughs> Remember, he never wants to embarrass his parents. So I think that while they're alive, I think he's he's okay. I, you know the. I've always wondered why he was his parents let him date so many beautiful women. You know, I don't know. You know he, but he did it very uh, surreptitiously and politely, and they all liked him. And so I would say you're okay. 
You can, you can, you can <laughs> sleep. You can sleep well at night. Yeah, he got mad. You know the the big uh, incident when he just stayed out late for a birthday party and George Steinbrenner jumped on him, you know, and started telling all the press about how Derek Jeter could be a better ball player next year if he, you know, can stay out so late. And <clears throat> Derek Jeter got really mad because he was. Uh, he was challenging his integrity about being a, a dedicated ball player with a good work ethic. And uh, so he actually got mad and he got, his agent got mad at Steinbrenner and laid off. Well, yeah, so. they did the visa contract. Right. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, what's interesting about that, I, I found out, is you know, that Steinbrenner looked so happy at the end of the thing dancing. And uh, the funny thing about it is, uh, Steinbrenner, that's enough, I'm going home. <laughs> he did that with him, yeah, so it wasn't as happy as it could be. So he, he got him to do it, but then he, he, he got out. But Steinbrenner used to apparently go to like jazz clubs and stuff and hang out in all, all over the city when he was younger. So uh, I don't know, he probably learned to dance years, years ago. But, uh, what about his relationship with A-Rod, was that at one time, they seemed very close, then they did not seem close. They were super close. Well, you know, the, everybody knows the, the reason they stopped being close was when they were both going after new contracts, and Rodriguez was about to get $252 million contract, and Jeter was still negotiating. And <clears throat> what happened was Rodriguez on the uh, radio, or I think ESPN, actually, <clears throat> was saying, uh, well, you know, I, did, I, I, I deserve this, and Jeter is not kind of on the level with me, you know, as a, as a player, because when the, the Yankees come into town, the, there's no clubhouse meeting where they say, what are we going to do to neutralize Jeter? You know, and, and Jeter was, what an insult while he's right. getting, you know, which wasn't true, because I have quotes from from players saying we did have clubhouse meetings where we talked about how to negotiate or neutralize Jeter. So <clears throat> that kind of behind the back kind of stuff uh, really got to him. And they, they were never close until 2009 when they happened to win the World Series. And they, you know, for, for years, like John Harper and Daily News was saying, you know, if Jeter would uh, offer the olive branch to Alex Rodriguez, the Yankees could win, and he never would do it. There would always be these little conflicts, things that I, we don't have to be friends, and then Rodriguez finally said, okay, we don't have to pretend to be friends anymore, and whatever, but in 2009, Jeter realized to win, we, I actually, as a team captain, I have to, uh, forge a bond with, with Rodriguez, and then they both uh, hit pay dirt. And, you know, they won the World Series mm -hmm. after, you know, they hadn't won it since 2000. But um, Rodriguez is an interesting person. They, they, they became friends right at the beginning uh, of their, their careers. Rodriguez asked advice for, from Derek Jeter on how to uh, break in, and how to negotiate contracts and whatever, and they, they would like, they would like stay with each other on the, and Alex Rodriguez was in Seattle at the time. 
<clears throat> and they'd visit each other and they'd stay with each other and be you know, these two, the two bachelors who uh, would share each other's pads and they'd go out on the town and they had a lot to talk about and whatever, but um, that, that, they never got over that, that little hump there. And, you know, which is weird is if you watch interviews with the two guys and you, you'll see Rodriguez, the flawed character, is much more flawed than Derek Jeter. It's, it's much more interesting than Derek Jeter. <laughs> he's, he's, he's conflicted. He's a conflicted character who, you know, went to therapy and whatever, and always he fear. He, here's a guy who who uh, really did uh, fear failure you know, in front of people and with his contract and whatever. And and uh, <clears throat> but, but he, he's so much more interesting when you interview him. He'll give you. He'll start start talking about everything and yeah. everything in the world, and Jeter is so guarded. Um, except, as I said, which is interesting, if you talk about his past, he's more open. So it'll be interesting if ten years from now, when you interview him about his career, uh, if if he'll open up a lot more. Because you know, as I said, he never it was a bad interview. Because he never wanted to talk about himself because he was too humble. He never wanted to say anything negative about. His, his teammates were saying negative about anything. And he also, unlike, unlike Alex Rodriguez, would never talk about, you know, working a pitcher. You know, what did you, how did you hit that pitch? He said, I don't know. You know, that, that would be his thing. You know, I, I just, I swung the bat and the ball went over there, went over the second baseman's head. You know, uh, it was an inside pitch and I still hit it there. I don't know how I did it. You know, and he did that over and over and over again. It just the work that, which made him a terrible interview. He would sometimes say, you know, they say, "Are you enjoying uh, this season? Because you've done this, this, and this." And he said, "Well, I'll think about it at the end of the season." Right. And who wants to interview him at the end of the season? You know. So, <laughs> so they, they, so the reporters lose their opportunity, and uh, but they're they're an interesting twosome, and I wonder if we'll ever see them together again. But uh, I, I don't know if people feel the same way, but I was watching September this year, and it seemed like Alex Rodriguez was trying to fit into where Derek Jeter used to be, you know, the, the leader specifically, you know, when CC Sabathia was, uh, went off right. for alcohol treatment, you know, he said, well, we're going to win this for, for CC, which they didn't, of course. But, uh, but he was like trying to take over and, and be the spokesman for the team. Uh, and he never would do that when Jeter was around. It's interesting if you watch, if you watch the, um, when the Yankee Stadium closed, the, the original Yankee Stadium, which should still be open, which is infuriating. <laughs> um, but w when you watch it, and he gave this final speech of uh, right. Jeter, which uh, he sort of improvised, and it was like this great, farewell speech, and we'll take the memories of this stadium and take it over to the old stadium. And all the Yankees are gathered around, and if you watch them, you just look at all the Yankees. None of these guys could have done that. Right. None of the, they all just let Jeter, Jeter, you know, this guy who's too shy in his school days to get up in front of the class and actually talk, and he's now able to, you know, talk to the everybody in the stands and give, give uh, at funerals of Steinbrenner and Bob Shepard.
and now Rodriguez tried to slip into that. But you know, not only was Derek Jeter the um, the face of the Yankees for all that time, he was also the voice of the Yankees. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah, but I I always found I found that relationship fascinating. Yeah, it was. They, they they couldn't have been more different in, in so many ways, and but the one thing that I, I found fascinating from A-Rod's perspective is here's this guy who comes to the Yankees and in his own mind, I'm better than Derek Jeter. Absolutely, you know? yeah. But he, and he was. But Jeter was the shortstop and that was it. He was the Yankee shortstop and A-Rod was never going to be the Yankee shortstop. It wasn't where, oh, Derek, you go third, play third base. It was, Rodriguez, you go play third yeah, base. Yeah, I'm sure there was that talk. talk. What do people think? Do you think you sh he should have moved to third? And you, Rodriguez? You don't think he could? Well, I think he had strong enough arm. I don't think he, his mind would let him. I think he felt, if I'm going to be the leader, I have to be the shortstop. He always, you know, as a, as a five-year-old kid, I'm going to be the shortstop of the Yankees. And I think it came with a leadership thing. And I think if he, he moved to third base or somebody, you know, Bobby Mercer said he'd be the best center fielder ever because he had the best instincts. Uh, he would never move because I think he would throw the balance of the team out of, out of whack. And I think if he moved, it would have happened. I don't think if Rodriguez played short and Sheeter played third, even as an experiment, it would have worked. I think the, 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 whole, the whole team would have gotten jittery. They needed, they needed to see Derek Jeter at shortstop. And, uh, and Rodriguez, you know, the Rodriguez resentment is rings. You know, Derek Jeter had all the rings and Rodriguez didn't have any. And he could say, I'm the better ball player, but as we said before, as we said before Derek Jeter's a winner. And Rodriguez had never proven himself to be a winner. And, uh, and he was, if he was going to do it, he'd have to do it with Jeter. But if, if Jeter learned, if he had to do it, he could do it again because he didn't have the same team as he had in 1998 and 99, which was a fabulous team, he'd have to do it with Rodriguez. They have to mend fences for that at least one year, and they did. And that was a remarkable team also, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, of uh, relationships and rings, uh, from the outside, it seemed to be a fascinating relationship. Jeter and Yogi. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's sad. Uh, my uh, picture of me on Facebook is me and Yogi Berra, by the way. Oh, wow. And my wife back there edited the Yogi Berra book, the Yogi book, oh. which is the, uh, the quote book of Yogi Berra. Right. Yogi Berra. Um, nicest man, nicest man. And that's another thing I said that, you know, that, that Derek Jeter had all the respect uh, for uh, all time ball players. He knew all the. You know, he became captain. He knew all the captains of the Yankees. And he knew, knew baseball history and whatever. So, so he had a lot of respect for, and this was a thrill. It's like a kid, kid coming into, you know, a kid coming into uh, the Yankee dugout, and there's all these, not only the players of the, the present, but with the, if you're in the Yankees, you know, Phil Rizzuto's hanging out, Yogi Berra's hanging out, Reggie Jackson's hanging out. Uh, so. What a thrill. And Yogi Berra, he became really close with Yogi Berra and he became, became really close with Phil Rizzuto, who was a former shorts. 
And these little guys, he would walk around. Right. Jeter was like six three, and they walk around with these little guys, and he, he just loved them, and he'd always, Barrett would always get on him because you know I've won ten ten, I have ten rings. Where you know you don't have ten rings, and, and Jeter would try to explain. Well, we had to win the the division series and the championship series to get to the World Series, but. Yogi Bear went by. <laughs> Keith, uh, you, you, if you, you met fans, would have heard Keith Hernandez bringing up the, the, the famous, the famous quote uh, or dialogue between the two is where Yogi Bear tells Jeter, "Stop swinging at bad pitches," and, and Jeter says, "Yeah, but you swung at bad pitches," and, and Bear's line was, "Yeah, but I could hit him." <laughs> <laughs> so. So they, he loved he loved Yogi Berra. I didn't see it, but uh, you know, in his uh, in on his uh, blog, the the Players Tribune, I think Derek Jeter wrote a tribute to uh, Yogi Berra after he passed away. So yeah, miss Yogi Berra. Yeah, absolutely. God, we lost we lost some nice you know good people. It's been a tough stretch. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think he was. I think he was already molded. I think Jeter was never going to change. I think from the time he was a, a teenager, he was. This is who I am forever. And I, I think that it is. A, that's an interesting relationship. The Steinbrenner, you know, he talks about Steinbrenner being another father. I mean, who wants George Steinbrenner to be the father? Yeah, tough. Well, they, you know, they they bonded. I mean, Dick Jeter and Steinbrenner because of winning, and uh, you know, Steinbrenner do anything to win, which, which was why Steinbrenner loved Jeter, and the accountability, because he was, uh, George Steinbrenner wanted everybody to be accountable. You know, in, in, even in the front office, secretaries, whatever, because he loved firing people who weren't. You know, he's just a madman, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, but but they actually, Jeter would visit Stein. Steinbrenner was in Tampa also. So in the off season, uh, Jeter would visit him, and he would be very cordial and polite. And Steinbrenner really loved that. You know, he's like a son coming to visit me, and he'd be, he'd be very respectful. And they would tease each other about football stuff and whatever. And and. Uh, and uh, I think I think Jeter presented him with the last ring in 2000 for the 2009 World Series. He presented him with a ring in 2010, which is shortly before he died. Whatever, but uh, you know, one of the things in the after after celebration, everybody pours champagne on everybody else, and Jeter poured it on Steinbrenner, and. Steinbrenner said he's the only guy who's allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, whatever. Does anybody have any Jeter story that I don't know? Any of the women been here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did anybody have their, their signs up? Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I always like the signs of the women, there's several women together in this, will, will you marry us? <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those, are, those are my favorites. 
Uh, well, a question I have about something that you did bring up. Okay. Uh, the Players' Tribune. Yes. So here's this guy who I was always wondering what he was going to do after he retired. Money, obviously, was not an object. So he could basically do anything or do nothing, like most of these guys do nothing when it comes down to it after they retire now. So uh, of here's this guy who basically, in many ways, was not exactly Mr. Media for some of the reasons you've spoken about. Or, and the last thing I ever would have imagined him doing was something like this, uh, doing something that was media-related. Was that, was that surprising to you or not? Well, it's actually anger-making for everybody who's a, a reporter or a writer. It really, really angered a lot of people, Mike Lucas particularly, all the gall, this slap in the face to all the reporters who, because he, he basically created this thing because uh, athletes were not, be, were not, when they were interviewed, were misquoted all the time. You know, they could never get their stories out. You know, as if Derek Jeter wasn't treated royally by the press through 20 years when they treated, and he treated them pretty badly, actually, you know, but politely badly. Um, so they were angry at this, uh, him creating this thing because it is, the reason for it is because the press is so bad, which it can be. Uh, um, so. You know, he also went into publishing, the publishing right. business. So that's that's part of what he's doing. But his, what you mentioned before, the Steinbrenner, he um, he wants to own a baseball team. That's his goal. Oh. He wants to own a team and be like Steinbrenner and call the shots. That's his thing. That's 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 the quote. I want to call the shots on a team, and I can't imagine him doing it with any team but the Yankees. But he's not gonna. On the Yankees, so maybe he can buy the Mets. You know, so, <laughs> now it's like Magic Johnson owning the Dodgers. I don't know; it didn't really make sense to me. But uh, being one of the owners of the Dodgers, right? But uh, yeah, I, I don't know what Derek Jeter's going to do. But he, he's he's into business, you know. But but he really was ready to retire, and he realized that the year before the before his 2014 tour, he was injured and he spent a lot of time. Just not feeling good, and he always said, "When I'm no longer fun to play baseball, I'm going to quit." And he realized it was time to quit, which is which is nice. It's it's a it's a good it's good when they realize it. And uh, so he wants to do other things. Uh, he has his foundation, so he right. can always spend as much time doing that as he wants. Um, but I think he has to be in charge. Of something, he always wants to be a leader. He's not going to say, "Can I have a menial job with you?" Or right. Whatever. Can I be the third man in the hierarchy and stay there the rest of my life? You know, can I have a lousy job with the Yankees? You know, just public relations. And no, he won't do that. He wants to be in charge. Is he? So he's in in the weeds with the Players Tribune. Oh yeah, he was. He he he's, he he'll be with that. He likes that. That. Yeah, it keeps him. Uh, I don't know how much he sees the material before it goes out there, but he's in with the books, you know, he has an imprint, and he makes sure he reads everything. He, right. he wants to be hands-on with whatever he, whatever he does. Not directly related to him, but to, for the Players' Tribune, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but uh, the I just read it on, if, if, if 
anyone that, you don't have to be a Met fan or anything, but obviously everyone here is a, is a baseball fan. So if you get a chance, if you haven't read it, uh, Michael Kadire, when he retired from the Mets, it was really just a beautiful column. In the play, he announced his retirement in the Players' Tribune. Just like it, Kobe Bryant did with a poem, you know. Right. You know, and there's some reporter there. Please give me the poem, you know. <laughs> well, when, when I read Michael Kadire's piece, I didn't read Kobe Bryant's, but yeah, I did. I saw it. It was so beautifully written. Are these guys, I mean, how much are they help with the Players' Tribune, or is Michael Kadire just a, oh, an I'm amazing sure. writer? Yeah, I think he's, he's helped. You know, I just did Jackie Robinson, who's like a brilliant, brilliant man, and he always had the ghost writers for right. all his newspaper columns and whatever. And, right. But, it, but he gave final approval, and he did all the final editing and whatever. So, But they all, yeah, People's Tribune has writers for these guys. Oh, all right. So my, unless Michael Kadire is the next great American novelist. I was going to say. He's a really eloquent guy, though. Yeah. Is that tactfulness yeah. of his? He said some really cogent things that were right on, and I think he was prepared to stick in there. I think he's been really literal. And, 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 uh, I mean, I, I'm always interested in uh, when players retire, too. You know, I said it's interesting in where the winners are. And because and, uh, Kurt Flood always had a thing about. You know, a lot of players like to go out on top. You know, that's the Rocky Marciano, 49 and 0, I'm retiring. And Kurt Flood always had a thing where everybody has a cycle. And, you know, the top and you come back and you know you, you can be not at your peak, then there'll be the time, that's the time to retire. And Michael Kadire did it really, you know. We won't forget that this guy gave up $12 million and he could have just gone on the disabled list and collected the money well, for the year. Well, able then to spend it on somebody else, so mm -hmm. that was really fine. But, I mean, Abel, I'm interested in because he... He's an interesting guy. In the postseason, he joined a huge team of people who were much more eloquent than he was, and he was kind of the junior member of the commenter in the team. The they call them, they say, welcome to the family, and you're thinking... Well, this guy is really <laughs> had resurrected his image, but by by uh, you know he was on the outs. But, you know, oh, it's yeah. all because he had a good season. You know, if he had a lousy season, he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been part of the Fox family. But he's interesting. But as I said, Jeter could not do that. Jeter could not analyze a pitcher and say, as a batter, I'm going to wait for you to. Uh, you know, on a 0-2 pitch to throw inside so he can throw outside on the next pitch. It's not going to do that. And also join as a junior member of a much more experienced, you know, I think it's mm -hmm. Well, he was on the panel with, uh, with Pete Rose. I don't know if we should bring Pete Rose up or not. We can always bring up Pete Rose. He's, <laughs> he's an interesting... Speaking of fascinating an interesting, people. An interesting... Yeah. I'm glad he's not re reinstated. Casey Close, Jeter's agent. Uh, just to, to repeat this also uh, for the, those listening, the question was how much did Casey Close influence Derek Jeter? Casey Close was Jeter's agent, who's now one of the, maybe the biggest or one of the biggest agents. Uh, and when did that start to wane? I don't know. Uh, probably started to wane at the end of his career. I mean, that, that said, he wasn't his original agent. Somebody else was his agent uh, for his first contract, and then Jeter, they got rid of him. 
when Casey Close came in and was you know real powerful, became really really more and more and more powerful. But I think Jeter. Jeter could have negotiated every contract himself. I, I think Casey Close just did what. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure he would say to him, "I can get you 180 million dollars." And Jeter would say, "What? Really?" I was. I was thinking 150 million, but okay, go for 180. I think that's about it. But uh, I think Casey Close is always really protective of Jeter. It's always the image, um, and. You know, I don't know what the relationship is now. You know, but when you don't, when you have a player who's retiring, it's a lot different than when you have a player who's at the peak and you get a new contract. But he, he managed. You know, he got he got him good contracts right to the end. He, and <clears throat> although Brian Cashman seemed to give him more than he wanted, even at the end of that <laughs> final contract. Yeah. There was one where he held out. They were trying to offer him ten. Well, he got really mad. I, he did several negotiations. I'm not exactly sure which one, but he got really mad for that. Uh, Brian Cashman at one point said, "Well, if you don't like our contract, look elsewhere," and that got out into the into the media. And Jeter didn't want to do anything through the media. Right. <clears throat> and he got really mad because you know I told you that I'm not, don't want to go anywhere else. I want to play with the Yankees forever. So why are you telling me this? And why are you telling me this through the media? It's really insulting. And, and Jeter got what he wanted. You know, so he always got what he wanted. Yeah, that uh, that entire episode I never understood in any way from the Yankees' perspective. Here you had, you know, DiMaggio was Mr. Yankee. So now Jeter will be Mr. Yankee until he passes away. It'll be the same thing. Why would you want to uh, do anything negative to your, the best asset you're going to have for the next 50 years? There was no point for Cashman to take it this public. It, it I, made I, no I, sense. I, I think it was the Steinbrenner kids at that point who oh, just, well. just wanted to show that they have power. But uh, you know, it was funny when you'd see them come out after, after the negotiations. It looked like it all came out of a bathhouse. All like sweaty and scraggly, <laughs> and who wants to deal with these people? But uh, yeah, they all look defeated, except for Jeter. He always comes yeah. out gl glowing. Did, did everybody think Jeter retired at the right time, or did they think he stayed too long, or what? Too long? Right time? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so too. I think he deserved that that final year. He didn't. I don't think he enjoyed it really, except it's, he said he enjoyed being in the opposing. Stadiums and getting cheered for the first time. He got, he liked that. He got just especially Boston, Fenway mm -hmm. Park. All of a sudden, there were Yankee fans for one day. You know, for his, so it was kind of interesting. What year did he play his first old timers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about that. It, it's really it'd be weird to see him at an old timers game. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a long time. Long time. That he won't want to do it. Yeah. I don't think he'll. I think he might show up for the first couple and not go out in the field. Does that make sense? Are you allowed to do that? I mean, he, I mean, I mean he, he can wrap his knee up or his ankle up and come out in a crutch. But I think, he, I think he'll think it's undignified for some reason to, to be playing. But 
maybe he'll surprise us, you know, he'll bat left-handed, you know, because he, at the uh, 1998 All-Star uh, game, was that 99, when he, in Fenway Park with the Ted Williams thing, when he imitated Nomar Garcia Parra at the, at the plate, so he'll do, he'll do a thing. But I, I, I have thought of that, because he's so young, you know, he could, uh, you know, have some really, you know, 70-year-old pitcher throw him in through the box, you know, kind of thing. So that, that'll be, that'll be, it'll be kind of interesting. And the, yeah, no, Yogi won't be at the uh, All-Star Games anymore. Yeah. Yeah, which defeats the purpose, kind of. Pretty much. Yeah. Yes? Do you think it's a coincidence that Jeter's being married after Achilles' playing career? Coincidence. I don't know if that's the right word, but it, but it, it follows what we were saying before about him wanting a new career. He also wanted to start a family. He said, he, you know, what we said before about him wanting to be a winner. He never thought he could do it if he were married. He, he didn't and married and have a family, he, which he really wants to do now. So that was the thing. I'm going to quit, start a family. That was one, two. And uh, I guess uh, we'll see. We'll see about the, the two part. <laughs> so, how do you think the media will treat him when he's turned from the Hall of Fame? That's interesting. I was going to ask you guys the same thing. Will he be the, you know, will, uh, I, I'm curious about Ken Griffey. I mean, will Ken Griffey get 100%? No. Why not? Just because it's nobody. Two careers. Hmm? Yeah, two careers. Ken like Griffey Jr. Ken yeah. Griffey Jr. Yeah, yes, the second draft was, was an, uh, an average career. Yeah, well, that's the reason he's not going to, because you, you know, Joe Demet, they won't vote, you know, they don't vote these guys in the first time 100% because the past Babe Ruth didn't get it, but right. Joe DiMaggio didn't get in the first ballot, you know, so that's the reason. Some, some reporter will have to defend himself, will say, no, I, because Babe Ruth didn't do it, I can't vote Jerry Cheater in. So Tom Seaver, who got the highest so far, 98 points something, uh, he says he, he says Jeter should be the first to get 100. percent You know, I don't know how these, I don't know how reporters, the the voters ever can say I didn't vote for somebody like Griffey or who who are the guys who didn't vote for Tom Seaver? You know, right. Who are who are those guys? You can't do you can't not vote for these guys and yet. But yeah, the good indication when Ruhiri gets voted on the year before. Well, that's, that's another 100 percenter. You know, how can you not vote for Rivera? Yeah, he, he retired one year before Jeter. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, of course, I'm not a big Hall of Fame fan because, you know, I did the Gil Hodges book and the Roger Maris book where I make these huge arguments. And I just got fewer votes <laughs> after my vote. <laughs> <laughs> you meant well. I meant well. But it makes no sense to me the, the voting. So uh, until the voting is, you know, the right people are in, I don't, you know, it's okay. Be, to be, who ha, it was, is it divided on Pete Rose? How many people think Pete Rose should be put in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Wow, I thought it was going to be a little higher. Yeah, with an actor. They do much worse now. 
Well, everybody has the stuff in the museum. I mean, I can. That's one of the arguments on Roger Maris that they have a lot of this memorabilia, except he's not in. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do they put shoeless short cats in and make them wait the same amount of time? That's so. Yeah. But as in San Rose was a manager, he had to read the rules that were banned from yes. baseball for betting to the players every year as the manager of the team. You know, one of the thing with Pete Rose is he, um, you know, we always think he, he agreed with Bart Giamatti that. I'm going to be banned from baseball. He didn't argue it. And there's a reason he didn't argue it. And it was for something not going public. You know, we just think, why did why would Pete Rhodes, who loved baseball and want to be in the Hall of Fame more than anything else, agree to be banned from baseball? Then after this happened, he always insinuated that, that, you know, this is what's wrong with baseball. They're keeping me out. There's no real reason. And then you got fans all over the country to think, oh, something, you know, why is Pete Rhodes, this Charlie Hustle? Out of baseball, there's no real reason. In the in the Ralph Kiner autobiography we did, uh, he, Ralph says, "I've seen betting slips of Pete Rose shown by as a player. He bet as a player, so which was what the reason he, That's, yeah. he accepted the ban. Right. You know, which is pretty obvious. But nobody ever. They always say that's okay. You know, they 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 are blind to that." So he broke the cardinal sin. You know, he, he did it himself, as all the steroid people did. They did it themselves and ruined the game, pretty much. Ruined the statistics book, for sure, all the steroids people. So, so Pete Rose, great teammate, great ball player, and he ruined it. You know, we want him in the Hall of Fame, because he should be, and he ruined it. He should you know, put him in. Any other questions from uh, Yankee fans or any other fans? Well, I'm just curious. Uh, when you write a biography, do you have a certain attitude about the person you're writing about that you want to present throughout the book? Well, with Roger Maris and Gil Hodges, I saw them play at their peaks, and you know, I know what the history is, and I'm thinking there's really, really been some revisionist history done to devalue these guys who were great ball players, especially. Roger Maris is a, is a unique case, but Gil Hodges, you know, he, he would go on Home Run Derby in the, with Willie Mays and the host would say, here are two future hall, guaranteed Hall of Famers. You know, everybody in the 50s said he was going to be in the Hall of Fame and there was no doubt about it and he watched him. He was a great ball player. And, and nowadays, you know, he's very good ball player, statistics comparable to some other guys. And, what? <laughs> what? So that's why I wrote the book. You know, I'm trying to, you know, I, I, I feel so indebted to the ball players of my youth. I, that, that was my joy of, you know, besides movies and whatever, but baseball was such a part of life. And I thank them so much. And, you know, and I want the history of baseball to be told the way it really was. So it really bothers me when the, the new generation of writers devalue people from my, my era. And I want to get it right. So. so I was thinking about it. You mentioned calling the book a quotation book, and the one like Lucky Robinson. Is that a new genre, or is that? I love oral history. Yeah. I, uh, I've been. Uh, I did this book called We Played the Game, where I went around. Uh, you know, everybody knows Lawrence Ritter, who right. and Donald Honig, and they went around with recorders and recorded all. 
uh, old old time time ball players, and and I love those books, and I love they were indebted to those guys. And Lawrence Ritter wrote the intro to We Played the Game, which is again oh. we we became really close friends, and uh, I interviewed sixty five players who played between 1947 and 1964, and my era, my, my general era, and just getting it down, what was right, and, you know, all the guys who say, Gil Hatches is great, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and my hero, Dick Power, I interviewed him, and so I, I just, I'm a baseball historian, and I just like to write. I just remember the, also, a big influence is the Edie Sedgwick book. Do you remember that one with Gene Stein and George Plimpton about one of the Andy Warhol people who uh, Santa Miller played in the movie, Factory Girl? And uh, that was an oral history, quote, followed by quote, followed by quote, and it's the whole, the whole. I love that genre. And uh, Derek Jeter was a real challenge, of course. You know, I tell Derek Jeter, I'm doing, uh, people, I'm doing a book on Derek Jeter on quotes. Derek Jeter quotes, you know, what? <laughs> you know, they don't go together, but you'll see that it does. So it's chronological from when he was a little kid all the way to he retired, which is his life, basically. And it's one quote after another. And it, I love the format. It's, it's an interesting format. Is there about perhaps leaving some quotes out because they don't present the image that you want to present? Or? No, it's not 100% positive. It's in uh, Jackie Robinson, man, both both ways. You know, Jackie Robinson supported Richard Nixon for president and stuff like that, and became a Republican and testified against Paul Robeson in front of UAC in '49. So there's a lot of negative, but I, I like to balance it. So I'll, I'll if if there's a you know there's a lot saber metrics people were like torn to Derek Jeter for years. You know, saying look. Worst shortstop in the history of the game, Bill, Bill James said, which is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but I always like to have a Jeter quote referencing that, saying, "How can I be the worst? <laughs> How can I be the worst ever?" You know. But he was such a bad. I think he was such a bad shortstop in the minor leagues. He made 56 errors one year, and and the Yankees actually. Their brass actually called up the Greensboro scorekeeper and said, "Stop giving him, <laughs> stop giving him so many errors." Well, and the scorekeeper said, "Well, he deserved every one of them." <laughs> so, and, and they, they say, the executive said, "God Almighty, this is the worst shortstop I've ever seen." He actually said that, and so I don't think all this criticism about his fielding really bothered him so much because he was so much better than he used to be. And right. he, in those days, when I said, he said he cried after every every uh, error and he'd have to go home and go to his uh, uh, hotel room or wherever he was staying, he was a roommate, and call up his parents and cry on the phone to them. This is, this is this young young ball player. So by the time by the time he got criticized by the sabermetrics people who tore into his fielding, he was a little immune to it, and you could laugh it off a little bit. But as I said, what you were saying, I, I'd like to counter it. Uh, but there is there's negative negative stuff. But it's it's mo in Jeter's case, almost everything is positive except for the. I do have a lot of quotes by the sabermetrics people.
I, it's only fair. I have to ask someone because you mentioned it twice. What's so special about Dick Howell? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, does any the people know Vic Howell at all? My, the my, my at all? Because he was dating white, his white women. Yeah, he's, a, he's a black Puerto Rican who was who was uh, going to be in the uh, who was in the Yankee system, except in the '50s the Yankees, the whole front office was bigoted, and they wouldn't bring up any of their players. And he hit 3.31 and then 3.49, and they kept him in the minors. And then they sent him to uh, to the Philadelphia A's, which where, where I became an A's fan. That's how that's how it happened. Um, he was, he was just an exciting ball player. He was the first the first baseman who caught with one hand. He, was a, he got a lot of criticism. They call him the showboat. A black player like Clemente, every black player who did anything with flair, called the showboat. He, he was caught with one hand. Uh, I'll get to his batting stance in a second. But, it, but, but the, uh, and Phil Rizzuto loved him. And let's see if he catches him with one hand. He caught him with one hand. <laughs> But what was great about him, and I always say he was the best first fielding first baseman in history, and he was a right-handed first baseman, so people disagree with me right away. <clears throat> oh, Keith Hernandez <clears throat> always compliments Vic Power. As he played, um, he played like a first base like an infielder, because he, he actually said third base was his best position, but he played, played like an a, uh, infielder, so he played way back. And he would tell in the A's, players, Joe DeMastri told me this, and he said, drive me crazy, Vic Power, because he would tell me, I kept, kept the ball, throw it to first base, even though he's not there. <laughs> and Vic Power would always get there, you know, in, in time. He would run from way out and always, always catch it, and he saved everybody errors and whatever, and uh, when he went to the Minnesota Twins in the 60s, that he was, he almost, he, he was in the top 10 in MVP, because all the Rich Rollins and the Zoila Versailles and Bernie Allen, the, young infield, they all terrible throwers, uh, all of them, and he saved them all errors, and they had a really solid, solid team. Then the batting stance, uh, which was this uh, pendulum swing, just this really exciting one. And he said he did it, because the, the bat would swing through low. He said, he said that would give the impression to pitchers that uh, I was a good low ball hitter. So they throw me high pitches, and, they, and in reality, I couldn't hit a low pitch. <laughs> so it was it was very deceptive. So, but he was just so exciting, and he was also very. He was from Puerto Rico, and um, if you see the old baseball movie, uh, he gets interviewed a lot, and he talks about uh, coming to America and dealing with racial discrimination, and you know, getting uh, getting pulled in for tickets for jaywalking and then telling the judge, well, uh, you know, I'm not allowed to go to the, the white bathrooms, and I'm not allowed to go to the restaurants with white people. So when I saw a walk sign, I thought, I shouldn't go with the walk sign. I <laughs> and he let it, got him off. <laughs> but he did a lot of, you know, he has a lot of the stories about, uh, and, and as a kid, it's reading this stuff that was really important for me in terms of, is there a racial, racial relations, there's not, but uh, I did long interviews, and my wife and I went to Puerto Rico to, in fact, I got in, I, I, you know, I'm a, uh, as you mentioned, I used to write about movies, and I did a lot of movie books, and, but I always wanted to meet Dick Power, and, because that was my childhood idol, and this is how I got into writing about sports, baseball, 
is I did a book called Cult Baseball Players, where famous people other than me would write about their favorite players. Uh, you know, Timmy Carver wrote about Bob Euchre and things like that, and Tony Kubek about Mickey Mantle. And, and I called up Vic Power and said, I will want to write about you. Uh, can I get come to Puerto Rico? So I came to Puerto Rico, had a three hour, you know, said, I'll give you three hours or whatever. So I go and we, we meet him. And after three hours, he says, oh, and it ended up, he picked us up every day at the, and he drove us all over the island. We met his grandkids, whatever. So we spent like five days with Vic Power. So one of my, and we became friends for the rest of our, you know, rest, rest of his life. And, uh, but couldn't have picked a better, a better hero. And he was my, was, other than my family, he was the most important person in my childhood. Almost. Yeah. And I, I got to meet him. And after that, I did more baseball books. Well, That's not his real passion. name, right? Peyote, P-E-L-L-O-T. Yeah, so. And my brother in Boston just met his granddaughter. Met out of the blue, you know, that. So, hope to meet her. I haven't shown him this book. We'll see. You know, uh, he's so he's, I, I, you know, a lot of the things he's very critical of, of any people. But he gets anything wrong, he doesn't remember. He is a little snide, a little lost. He got it wrong. So we'll see about this. I, I didn't want to have him read it while I was putting compiling it. But I think maybe. What do you think, Kim? Should we send it? That's the publicist. publicist. Send it to him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there. I'm sure there's something wrong in there that he'll find. I didn't have an exact, exactly right. the Roger Maris book. His uh, family won't talk to me. They were angry because I pres I mentioned that Roger Maris's mother had a very strange relationship life before before he was around and. Uh, they didn't like me portraying her that way, but that's the way she, that's the way she was. They wanted me to, to sanitize it for the grandchildren, so they don't talk to me. That's the, I don't want to talk to them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to give the last word to uh, Derek Jeter himself huh. with the uh, the last quote in the book. Uh, I've lived the dream since I was four or five years old. And now the dream is over. Baseball immortal, Derek Jeter, a career in quotes, uh, put together beautifully by Danny Perry. Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you.